All right, welcome back to another episode of the 90th Percentile. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Matt Pajak of Loden Sports. Matt, got another guest on today. We're going to be talking a little bit about Japanese baseball. Our guest today, Billy Martin, VP of Operations at Slammers Baseball, has some experience, played in the minor leagues for a handful of years. I think it was seven, and uh, played a season uh, with the... uh, yeah, Colt Swallows in the J- Japanese Central League. Yeah, I said all that right. Um, interesting topic. You know, I think it's hot right now just based on the performance of Japan and the WBC, what we've seen um, from Japanese players coming over here stateside in recent years. But I think in particular, the development not only of pitchers, but of hitters as well. Um, we're seeing better and better Japanese players, it seems like. They're catching up on a national level if they haven't surpassed us in some regards. Um, so it's it's an interesting topic to get into. I know I got to see Team Japan for two games uh, in the semis and then the finals in the WBC, and it was an impressive showing. Yeah, look, he's not Shohei Otani by any means, right? But uh, definitely, you know, someone who's got some experience both stateside and over in Japan and salt of the earth baseball guy. Uh, Billy Martin is an absolute treat to talk to uh, and definitely looking forward to picking his brain a little bit about what that experience was like over there versus over here. Um, yeah. I think development largely is, is centered around the culture of whatever country you're in. I think there are certain reasons why things are done a certain way in one country and not done that way in another country. And I think there are certain things that are authentic to one country that can't be replicated in another country. So, um, you know, Japan, much of Asia is very much a team oriented culture and, you know, the United States here, obviously much more of an individualistic culture as a whole. Uh, and that definitely bleeds into how we develop athletes in, you know, our sports culture as well. So um, we'll definitely be an interesting conversation. Looking forward to having him on here. Um, but before we get into any of that, Jeff, I, I just got to ask you, when was the last time you were in an elevator and actually heard elevator music? Ooh. Um, I want to say that when I was at the winter meetings, I was in an elevator and, and, and heard elevator music. And it was like the elevator version of popular songs. <laughs> That's kind of funny. That's like um, Bridgerton. Like if you listen to Bridgerton, it's like all of the classical music and the scenes. I don't know if you're a Bridgerton guy by any means, but no, sir. Yeah, that you know, I'm like I would listen to like the classical music being played, just be like, okay, what current popular song is that? You're like, oh yeah, that's Ariana Grande. It's a little bit of a test, a little bit of a test for you, but it, that's what it sounds like. Yes, yes, I think I can distinctly remember hearing "Call Me Maybe" as an elevator song while I was in the elevator. And that's a treat. I, you know, yeah. I was just so I was just at the dentist this morning and I got into an elevator and there wasn't any elevator music. And then I was sitting there. I was like, I can't remember the last time I was in an elevator that had music. And I was like, is elevator music dying? We've killed it. Like it was millenn- millennials have ruined elevator music like everything else. Right. Also, so I, I think I, I put my finger on uh, what makes elevators so awkward when there's other people in the elevator is that unless you're consistently riding the same elevator, 
they all have like different timing and in cadences so like sometimes like and here's the clip in the show where matt talks about elevators for 10 minutes while his vocals cut out maybe that was a message from the universe that was like don't talk about elevators elevator music or elevator etiquette we just don't want to hear about it it was the ai like kicking in and saying Hey, stop talking about other machines. We're not going to let this happen. Yeah, like AI and or government was just like talking about a hot button topic here. Shut them down. (laughs) Elevator music never existed. It was all a psyop. All right. Well, uh, for anybody listening, uh, we are going to cease our conversation to try and keep keep the peace, I guess, in the in the machine world. elevator etiquette say hi to your friends when you get in the elevator that's that's all i got for you <laughs> yeah i i uh i i do think it's a funny topic though it's it's uh, my my bad like my very very toxic trait when i'm on an elevator is um i always look at the elevator certificate and see the last time that it was inspected <laughs> <laughs> because there was one elevator i used to have to take in college all the time that hadn't been inspected in like three years and it would like it would like sit like a splinter in my brain. I'm also a person that I, I don't know why I have been stuck in no less than five or six elevators in my life. I was stuck in an elevator at a, a travel hockey tournament in Vermont one time. And like the elevator was like between floors and they had to like rescue us. And we had to like slip through <laughs> to get out of this elevator. And then there was another time where I had a ankle injury. Um, in like the spring of my sophomore year of high school and we had an elevator and I couldn't go up and down stairs because I had crutches. And uh, I got stuck in that elevator for an hour and a half at the end of the school day. So I didn't end up, I should have been out of school at two, ended up getting out of school at three 30. So, and then it's happened a few times since then I've been, I actually was stuck in an elevator a couple of spring trainings ago at the, the Mets, like at Clover, uh, the Met Spring Training Field, and we were going up to the third floor. I was on the second. It was the only way to get up to the press box was to take the elevator. I then ended up when the elevator opened, we were on the basement. So we apparently fell like two or three stories on this elevator. Never had any idea that I was there, and I was stuck there for like forty-five minutes. And it was like the seventh inning. I I, I missed like two or three innings of the game. After that, I just got in my car and drove back to the hotel room and was like, I'm just going to start again tomorrow after being stuck in this elevator. So I've been stuck in many elevators. So well, moral of the story here to our listeners is take the stairs, take the stairs, you take lazy stairs. tons of guns, burn a couple extra calories. I worked in a building in Boston that was in the 14th floor and I would take the stairs every morning and then every day after work. Oh man, that's so. Anytime I'm at the airport, like I, I take the stairs or I don't take the automated walkway on purpose because there's just like so much more space when you take the stairs or not the automated walkway because everyone just funnels to that just almost like robotically. But um, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a little bit niche, and I'm not really a horror movie guy myself. Um, but if you haven't seen it, don't watch it because you're a guy that gets stuck in elevators. Uh, <laughs> it's this movie called Devil. It came out in like 2010. 
and it's like they get stuck in an elevator there's like six or seven people in there and then like every once in a while like the lights will go out and then like the lights will come back on after like five or six seconds and like someone will be like gruesomely killed and like they know that it's one of the people on the elevator but they don't know which one it is because they're all strangers and like this keeps happening over and over again <laughs> gruesomely anyway. killed yeah. yeah anyway um japan <laughs> let's talk about japan a little bit uh yeah before we get billy on here let's uh let's set the scene a little bit world baseball classic champions all right uh 2020 olympic gold medalists in both baseball and softball all right so japan seems to know what they're doing in batted ball sports mm-hmm. they're deep they develop pitching they develop hitting. It's not like they're one or the other or whatever it is. Like they are, you know, one through nine uh, competitive and they probably play the most disciplined brand of baseball of any country in the world, just in terms of, you know, not making mistakes. And um, it's, you know, going back a couple conversations ago, like they throw a lot of strikes. Um, you know, they don't walk a lot of guys. I think if you go look like, the numbers were insane during the world baseball classic. They walked like maybe like three or four guys before they got Mm -hmm. to Miami. Like it was insane. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a beautiful brand of baseball. It's something we got to see on the world stage, world baseball classic. Um, and their guys come to the United States and they have success, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, they've got a long history of it. Ichiro, uh, Hideki Matsui, um, you Darvish, Shoei Otani is, probably the biggest name in baseball in the world right now. Um, Tanaka, you know, Yoshida this year has been tremendous. You even Um, go back and like, I know Dice K was a little bit overhyped, but like he came and had success. You know what I mean? It's not like he flopped. People forget that he had a season where I think he finished like top five in Cy Young voting, you know, and then it kind of fell off. Um, And we don't know how much of that was, due to injury and maybe overuse at some point because he liked to throw a lot. Um, But a lot of those guys do, you know, and I think it's, it's funny because they don't seem as concerned with pitch counts the way that, that we are. And with the string injuries that we've seen in recent years, and I know that, that, you know, we've actually had an article, I think JJ wrote about this in the site. Um, I think people think that these hundred pitch counts are, to you know preserve pitchers arms when really it's just it's the third time through the order penalty and this feeling like hey we got bullpen guys that can come in and are going to be more effective situationally than a lot of these starters are um so it's interesting matthews last night threw what 150 something pitches yes yeah yeah and there's like people that are up in arms about it but i'm sitting here i'm like i don't know like if he's if he's fit to do that i don't think yeah, just as long as you don't come back and throw him again tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, and I think he's in, and like Matthews, this is a totally different like side conversation, but like Matthews is a different animal, I think, than like if it was a first two round pick that was doing this. Like, he was drafted last year. He didn't sign. He wanted to go back to Stanford. Stanford's a top five school in the, in the country right now. It's on par with any of the Ivies in terms of the education you get. He's a really smart kid. I know that he is very interested in the stock market and being a stockbroker. And I think with some of these guys, it's the same with like guys that come out of the Ivies is like, 
is this guy going to like, does he want to play pro baseball? Because he probably is going to make more money in the next five years going and getting a real job because of the quality of his degree, how smart he is. And the fact that he's like, you know, a high level division one athlete who also is a very good student. Like those guys are hot commodities in the business world as well. And he'll probably would end up at, you know, a pretty sizable firm or whatever. Um, well, that based on the conversations we had on velocity and like what what plays at the highest level of the sport, like, you know, maybe he doesn't really profile as a MLB pitcher, MLB starter, you know, and if that's not the case, then it's like, I don't know, you said he's a smart dude, right? Stanford, like, maybe he's got a little bit of like, okay, realistically, I go into pro ball, like, what's the end game? Yeah. So, yeah, anyway. I mean. Yeah, exactly. And I think with a lot of these guys, we have to look at what the expectations are before getting up in arms. And I think there's something to be said for something that a guy like that wants to do. This could have been the high point of his baseball career, right? Saves the bullpen. Let's say, and you know, listen to this podcast, you may know what the outcome is already, but let's say he goes, you know, they go out today, they beat Texas, they advance to Omaha kind of like a legendary moment it might you know he he did that and a team ends up getting to Omaha I understand the concern with pitch counts and injuries and everything else but there also has to be a point where you have to let a competitor be a competitor you gotta let him have his moment and if this is something that he wants to do you gotta let him do it because I mean after that game not that Stanford is a great track record with taking care of their arms they don't right we we can accept that and, and two things can be true. Like it's, it's, you know, two things can be true and both can be very reasonable perspectives on this. It's funny that we got into this conversation of all things, but um, you know, I do, I do think that when we look at a guy like this, you got to ask, like, is he ever going to pitch in a pivotal game in the world series? Maybe not. Like, you know, he worked his whole life to get to this point, could have signed and gone into pro ball last year, decided not to decided to go back to Stanford for a fourth year. And when they interviewed him after the game, he was like, I think I can get three to six outs tomorrow. If they need me, I want to go, you know? And like, I don't know, like, it's not, it's, you you can't throw full negligence at a guy like that or at the coaching staff or something, because it's something he wants to do, you know? And, and I think he, I think he made a quote and I don't, I don't want to misquote him by any means, but there's something along the lines of like someone asked him a question regarding the start and he was like they're like are you surprised or something at you know how well you went out there and, and you carved him up and he was like yeah a little bit because like my stuff's not that good yeah he said it, that. Was, it, it was like something to that effect right no, it and was like, like that word for word yeah, yeah i don't i i can really appreciate like the self-awareness and i think going back to your point like you know for anybody who's ever been on a college campus like especially like a tight-knit group like look like you know maybe he's doing it for everyone that was in his you know, all of his classes for four years. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's the community bond that sometimes we forget when we look at it through a pro lens of like, man, like this guy's a campus hero, you know? Yeah. I mean, and, and we do the opposite in bowl games where guys sit out bowl games because it could hurt their pro prospects. Right. Yep. Um, but at the same time, we don't look back and go like Willis McGahee was one of the best running back prospects and was the lead guy on a team that had, you know, a hall of famer behind him and another pretty good running back, you know? Um, and it's like, Willis McGay, he was kind of never the same. He had a good, he had a good NFL career. Um, but who knows what he is if he doesn't get hurt. But that being said, like, 
you compete, you want to win. It's why those guys get out there. It's unfortunate at times that there are injuries that come of this. Um, but I don't know. I don't think Quinn Matthews is is, is going to be on his deathbed and be like, if I didn't throw 156 pitches, I could have won the, the Cy Young or something like He's probably going to be bragging about that, you know. Exactly. <laughs> he's going to have a, he's going to have a plaque in his in his office that says that, you know. I, I just think that the expectations and and the other thing is it's like it's a it's a double edged sword. It's a catch twenty two. Do you want to win? You know. Do you want to be a competitor and show that side of you? Um, you know, or do you want to protect yourself for the next level? And I don't think either decision is necessarily wrong. But you know, we kind of attack these guys and their coaches one way or the other, regardless of what happens, you know, somebody has to be the bad guy where I don't think that's even what it is. You know, um, championships matter, man. Like winning a title matters to these guys. Getting know? to Omaha is huge. Level. Just getting to Omaha is huge. Yeah. And, right. and I mean, what are there seven competitive teams in major in major league baseball on any given season that actually have legitimate contender title aspirations that are real the chances you get into one of those teams, make it up to the big leagues, and pitch a pivotal role is small. That these are some of the last meaning, really meaningful games these guys will play because I can tell you, having watched a lot of minor league baseball, um, those aren't they want to win, but they're not really meaningful. Like you know, you're not bragging about winning an Eastern League championship or something like that. If you get a good crowd in minor league baseball. It's because of the ballpark atmosphere and the promotions and all of those things. It's not necessarily because they're attached to the players on the field. A rehabbing big leaguer, like the most exactly. players, I, people, uh, fans I ever saw in Pawtucket when it was still in, uh, you know, in in, uh, in in affiliated ball and uh, was still the AAA affiliate of the Red Sox was when Dustin Pedroia was on a rehab assignment. The place was packed, packed. Oh, yeah. Kyle Wright pitched that day. They couldn't have cared less that there was a, a future big leaguer on the mound. They were there to see Dustin Pedroia and his swan song. It was like probably one of his last three or four like professional games too. Cause his, and it was obvious his legs, he didn't have his legs at that point. But once again, right. we're getting off a tangent here. Anything you wanted to add on um, Japanese development, Japanese players? I think the, the most interesting thing is like everybody that pitched for them seemed to have a super – highly efficient four seam fastball and a splitter like every yeah. single one of them, you know? Um, and I almost feel like they jump started this recent splitter revolution that we're seeing. I can tell you just looking at numbers, guys are throwing a lot more splitters, at least in the minor leagues this year than they had in the previous two or three. Um, and I wonder why I wonder, you know, if it has something to do with the success of that pitch in Japan and with a lot of these these pitchers that have come over, and it's a it's a very unique type of pitch. Well, I think we'll be able to ask Billy some of these questions because maybe these were things that were around back when he was playing um, over in Japan. But yeah, I mean, we talked about you know all the guys that have had success in Major League Baseball that have come from Japan, the guys who are currently having success, and there's more on the way. If you watch World Baseball Classic, it's it was a showcase of you know two or three more players that'll come over in the next four or five years that are going to make an impact for someone's team. So, um, yeah, let's let's get into this. Quinn Matthews, salute. Uh, keep doing your thing. Hopefully you get to do that again in Omaha. But, um, yeah, let's get into some Japanese baseball through the lens of Billy Martin. Let's do it. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's uh, welcome in our guest. It is Billy Martin, the VP of Operations at Slammers Baseball in Colorado. Uh, give you a little background on Billy. He's a former 34th round pick by the Mets in uh, the 1998 draft uh, out of Texas. Played seven years of minor league ball from 1998 to 2005. A career 285 hitter with an almost 900 OPS. And as we mentioned in the opening, uh, played for the Yakult Swallows in 2004 in the Japanese Central League. So welcome, Billy. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you're talking to a guy who went and played in Japan. Uh, sushi is one of his favorite foods, and he had no sushi during his time in Japan. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's all wolf. about the uh, superstition of being a ball player there for sure. <laughs> what is that well i just would like you know through through the years i whatever i was kind of a creature of habit with what i ate so when i was playing i didn't venture outside that box very often that's fair you probably were you, you know not as a not sushi guy at the time you were probably afraid of sushi yeah i was probably a little afraid of sushi and then on top of that i actually found might have been the only Mexican restaurant in Tokyo, which I crushed about four times a week. There you go. Was it, was it any good? Yeah, it was actually really good. It was uh, like a couple stories underground. You know, you go down there, we had a mariachi band. It definitely, you did not feel like you were in Japan when you were down there. And uh, food was good. There you go. Well, you if you learn nothing else about Japan while listening to this. They got mariachis and Mexican food. Yeah. It was, uh, you definitely go down there and have a couple of Coronas and walk back out and you're like, oh. Felt like you were in a different spot, obviously. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. Little, Billy, little bit of, little bit of home. Billy, what were the circumstances that brought you to Japan back in, what was it, 2004? Yeah, 2003, I was with the Diamondbacks. I started that year in AA and then I got, I got moved up to AAA about – seven or eight weeks into the season. Um, I had a good year that year. And then I had, I was under control for one more year with the Diamondbacks and they 
they sold uh, they sold my rights to Yakult, and away I went. That's crazy. I feel like that doesn't really happen uh, in 2023, where guys are affiliated in the states and then their contract gets sold to Japan. Yeah, it was kind of uh, my hitting coach in AAA was a guy named Jack Cal. He was a really good dude, but he played in Japan. Uh, he actually won an MVP for Yakult, and I think that was part of where that connection came from. But, uh, you know, it was a great opportunity for me. You know, I'd been stuck in the minor leagues for a while with the Diamondbacks, and, you know, the teams, those guys had, I got rule fived over there in 99. Um, the teams those guys had in the early 2000s, it was not a good place to be a minor league baseball player. <laughs> Fair enough. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, that's always, uh, that's always part of it too, is like being able to find your opportunities. Um, so you go over, you go overseas to Japan, um, you know, after whatever, six, six years of pro ball here in the United States. And I know we've talked about this a little bit, you found a Mexican restaurant, but what was the, what was the culture shock like going over there for the first time? Um, like those first few days, you know, going there, kind of finding things, figuring things out. Um, cause it was a time before people had, you know, cell phones the way that we have them now and just trying to get around even was very different. I can only imagine what the experience was like getting there. Yeah. The, the clubs do a great job with making that is, is easy and as, as a transition as they can. They brought me over to fall camp. Um, so I went over for about four weeks in the fall, um, trained over there. So I kind of got my feet wet a little bit. You know, we had, there's four, they can have four non-Japanese players on the roster. And then we had two interpreters. So our interpreters over there were great, you know, so they would kind of answer our questions. And then, you know, after fall camp, I was over there and kind of got exposed to it a little bit. And then I came back home for a few months and we went back over for spring training. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely different for me. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, mass transit, you know, trains. You know, I grew up uh, in West Texas, so we obviously that wasn't an option where I grew up. Um, you know, so getting navigating the trains a little bit, you know, the language barrier was different. And then, you know, you had all of that stuff to get to the ballpark, and then obviously the ballpark was different when you got there. You know, the uh, first spring training game, you know, I played in and – you know, we were in Okinawa, you, you know, you're walking up to the plate and there's, there's chants and music and flags waving around. And there's, you know, there's people everywhere, which, you know, as much time as I'd spent in the minor leagues, it's not like we were used to playing in front of, you know, several thousand fans. And then, you know, the stadiums over there, they're packed, they're well attended, you know, it's a passionate fan base, but it's definitely a completely different game atmosphere for sure. But it was uh, it took a little bit to acclimate. But they, you know, my experience over there versus in the late '90s with the way the Latin players were coming over here, the Japanese folks definitely took better care as far as navigating those guys around than we were doing that here with the Latin players. Yeah, and um, last week we talked to you know the managing director for player development for Australia baseball. Um, and in Australia, baseball is like the 15th most popular sport. So like, I know you touched on it there with like the size of the crowds and everything. And I think it's pretty well known. Um, yeah. My, one of my favorite 
facts from the World Baseball Classic is that Lars Newbar, after playing for Team Japan, now has more Instagram followers than the entire St. Louis Cardinals. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. But like, just you know, kind of speak to like the enormity of baseball over there, and just how you know you talked about the passion, just how big it is for you know everybody, and in, in terms of like a way of life. Well, like, I mean, the, the biggest thing for me, like I said, I know it's a little different for guys that go over there to have big league time and they're, they're veterans. But for me going over there as a minor league guy, I felt like I was playing in the Super Bowl, you know, basically every day. Um, you know, when we were, you know, you call, you've got the Giants there. So obviously Tokyo is a really large place. And then they have the two teams there in town. Um, but when we would play the Giants, you know, I mean, there'd be, you know, whether it was at our place or we were playing at the Tokyo Dome, I mean, there'd be forty to 50,000 fans there. Um, you know, when you played at Hanshin, it was the same thing. That stadium was crazy, you know, with the amount of amount of folks that are there and then the passion that goes into the game. And like I said, I mean, it's, it's really hard to describe until you're walking up to the, to the plate and there's flags waving and there's music going and there's, you know, they um, they used to the bang on these things. You know, it was like a, almost like a drum. I mean, it was uh, you'd go home at night, close your eyes, and you know, I'd you just hear those in your in your ears. You know, because that was uh, my comfortability playing defense over there was definitely challenged a little bit. I mean, historically, I was a corner infielder, and then they brought me over there and they they put me in right field, which. You know, if you don't run and throw real well, that's kind of a challenge, you know, to play out there, especially when there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on during the game. Um, you know, I'm just kind of looking around out there and it's uh, it was really cool looking back at it. I mean, at the time, you know, it was definitely different, you know, especially playing a different position. But it was uh, it's really cool to see the amount of passion that they have for the game of baseball. Yeah, probably not a great place to have ADD. <laughs> no, it's uh, you're standing out in right field when you don't run real well. You're looking at a lot of a lot of turf that you don't think you can cover. Yeah, <laughs> that's true as well. Big parks. Um, let me ask this too, because um, you had your experience, you know, with minor league baseball in the states. Um, I think we're all familiar, especially if you're listening to a podcast at Baseball America, of how the minor leagues work in the United States. How does it work in Japan? Because I even feel among somewhat knowledgeable readers and baseball fans, et cetera, they're not all that well-versed in, you know, which leagues are the minor leagues, which are, you know, the majors over there and sort of how the system all works. Well, assuming things are the same as they were over there in, you know, 2004, it would be really easy to, to track the minor leagues over there because every club's got one team. Um you know, so there was just one layer to the minor leagues. You know, a lot of them stayed. They had basically dorms that were built, you know, where they, they housed them, fed them, you know, and then they they did a lot of training there as well. You know, so they, uh, they worked extremely hard at the game, and they kind of had everybody under, under, you know, one roof to take care of being able to train them as much as they could. Yeah, and I kind of want to get into a little bit, you know, some of the primary differences you might have observed from a development perspective. And I know we've talked about it in the past, uh, just, you know, repetition after repetition after repetition, but it's a very different culture over there. Um, and I know they start them young and they kind of, you know, drill it from, you know, the time that those their kids all the way up, you know, the same way in pro ball over there. But, you know, just kind of talk about like, you know, 
the differences in like batting practice between being an affiliated ball stateside and batting practice over in Japan? Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't take you long to realize things are going to be to be different. I mean, your first clue was there's, you know, there's two turtles on the field, you know, so there's two people taking batting practice at the same time. Um, I know with you call, we did it, you know, they had a righty in one and a lefty in the other one. And they were the majority of the guys they had throwing batting practice were former, you know, major league pitchers they kept on staff. You know, so they would they would actually throw, you know, fastballs, breaking balls, fork balls during BP. Um, you know, a lot of the Japanese players at times, they, they didn't know what was coming. So they would just kind of mix and match. You know, for us, when we're used to just seeing fastballs in BP, a lot of times we like, you know, we'd ask them to know what's coming. But it was that was just kind of a glimpse into the amount of efficiency they were trying to put into all their pregame work, their practice time. Um, you know, it's the mechanics of the game are, you know, they're, they're the same, you know, whether you're in Latin America, America, you're playing in Japan, Korea, you know, I mean, the mechanics are the same, but the amount of effort they put into some of the nuances and then at the level they would practice those was definitely different. You know, I mean, it's, if you're watching a game on TV, you know, I mean, and it's, if it's a Japanese player and, and, you know, they're given a bunt sign, I mean, they're going to get the bunt down. Um, you know, from a young age, they just spend a tremendous amount of time kind of in the details of the game that I felt like, you know, on the American side, you know, we depend a lot more on athleticism, you know, size and strength. I mean, obviously we still work hard here, but I felt like we probably spent more time on the athletic side of it. And, you know, they would get into, you know, some of the nuances of the game a little more. Yeah, it just feels like a different level of discipline when you're talking about Japan and just in terms of like anything. And I think like that holds true to like a number of different industries where Japan's a major player. Like Toyota is widely known as probably the most reliable vehicle that you can buy. Um, and it's a Japanese company. You know, coincidence? I don't know. Um, I think it largely has to do with their culture. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fascinating when you think about it, just kind of like their approach to everything versus the approach to the game here in the States. But, um, you know, a question that me and Jeff were bouncing back and forth earlier before you came on and, and we're curious, uh, the fork ball splitter, same thing. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, feel, I feel a little uneducated here, but yeah, no fun. Um, <laughs> it definitely, the splitter had its moment during the world baseball classic. Right. Like it was it was showcased in full effect. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone that Japan threw out there had one um, and it was disgusting. So, you know, you talked about how that was a regular part of BP uh, was the splitter just as big a part of, you know, pitching in Japan back in 2004 as it is now. Well, the pitch mix over there is definitely different. You know, I was a right handed hitter, you know, so it was. You know, primarily as a power guy coming up through the minor leagues here, it was fastball slider um, against right-handed guys. Over there, I mean, it was still fastball slider, but the forkball was definitely a – it was a bigger player. Um, you know, and it's – I mean, there's some guys that were over there. Wahara was over there. He started with the Giants while I was over there. We faced him multiple times as a starter. That was not very enjoyable, you know, because I, I swear he had a forkball that went like 17 different ways. Um, you know, but they'll the – Yeah, they're so good throwing it. They throw it at any count. Um, 
you know, it's a tough pitch to hit. You know, I mean, it's uh, especially, you know, for a guy like me who when I went over there, I mean, I, I did most of my damage on on fastballs and I hit breaking balls well enough. I could hit the hanger, but I would hit breaking balls well enough to get more fastballs. And then over there, you know, they don't they don't give in as much. Um, it's definitely a tough pitch, you know, to hit. I mean, especially now with some of the guys they have that are that are throwing harder. You know, you start mixing that splitter in with guys that start throwing, you know, mid to upper 90s, and it, it, it becomes a tall task pretty quick. No Absolutely. Doubt. And I wanted to kind of jump in here, too. Um, we talked a little bit about the focus on athleticism here in the United States. In previous episodes, Matt and I have spoken about sort of that PO mentality for a lot of guys where they're a pitcher only and not an athlete. One of the things that I noticed, you know, being at the World Baseball Classic for the semis and final, seeing Team Japan a couple of times, seeing these pitchers up close, seeing them working out and stretching all those sort of things before the games. Um, it seems like there's a focus, at least just from an observational standpoint, on athleticism with pitchers over there. I know you weren't a pitcher, but like in terms of the training, the things that you saw within your own team, was that something that was more of a focus for pitchers over there? What sort of stuff were they doing? Because um, I think you see that, like, consistently everybody that was on Team Japan, that pitch was a really good mover. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what one of the things that they were doing, you know, even 20 years ago when I was over there was a lot of their strength guys would come over here and they would intern in the States. So they would kind of come over here and see what was going on here, and then they would take it back, and then they would put their own – you know, they would put their own spin on it, you know, and that was 20 years ago. And just the way the Japanese culture works with efficiencies and, you know, how they're constantly trying to improve their process. You know, when you look at some of the guys that are coming over now, they're a lot more physical than they were 20 years ago. You know, when I was playing in the guys that were coming over here, you know, so clearly, you know, they've bought into, you know, the athleticism stuff that we were doing. And then they're, they, they're, they're implementing that at a pretty high level into their own training. Um, you know, that was one of the things too, like for us with spring training where I was like, man, this is, you're going to have to pack a lunch to get through a Japanese spring training day because, uh, you know, the first day it took us like an hour to warm up. You know I mean? We, we ran like, you know, three laps around the field. I mean, and then we ran sprints and we stretched, we did plyometrics and, you know, we literally hadn't even touched a glove yet and I was ready to go eat lunch. You know I mean? It was, uh, so that was kind of a glimpse into, you know, where in the States, some of the stuff that we, that they were doing was all stuff we did here, but it would be periodized here where we would do a little bit at a time. And they were kind of implementing it all on a daily basis, you know, kind of from day one, you know. So, um, you know, again, I don't know that there's a lot of secret sauce out there, but it's they, they definitely are not going to get outworked when it comes to implementing those those drills. Yeah, they uh, they they live under the Bill Belichick mantra of no days off. No yeah, absolutely. days off. Yeah. No. <laughs> um. All right. Last thing that that I have, and and then I'll, you know, toss it over to Jeff if he has any last things, and we'll let you go. Um. Yeah, just from your personal opinion, your experience in Japan versus in the states, were there things that you thought that they did better that you wish? was more ingrained in the culture here in the States and vice versa uh, were the things that you thought that maybe 
were a little bit overkill that weren't necessarily necessary. Well, I, th I think to answer that, I think some of it's just, you know, if you're in doctrine, if you're a Japanese player that comes to America, you know, or, or if you're going the other way, you're an American player that winds up going to Japan, you're kind of indoctrinated into certain training styles, certain workloads. Um, you know, I mean, I know for me, when I went over there, you know, I was 20, 27 when I went over there, 26, 27, and I'd already had, you know, five surgeries when I went over there. So, you know, realistically going over there, knowing what I know now versus then, you know, if you'd already had four or five surgeries as a player here, you know, you're probably not going to stay healthier playing in Japan because of the workload. Um, you know, but as far as, you know, there's definitely a sweet spot. I mean, I'm, I definitely know, you know, doing what I do now, you know, running an academy and, you know, the way we train and, you know, a lot of the stuff that we do, you know, I've definitely taken some of that stuff from, how we train in Japan as far as just trying to be as efficient as possible and maximize repetitions for guys, you know, but it's uh, the crossover between the two was, was really good. I mean, the nuances of the game, you know, that's one thing, you know, as a position player, you're always managing along, you know, with your manager. And, you know, I was definitely wrong a lot more than I was right in Japan as far as, you know, who would come out of the bullpen when we were going to hit and run, when we were going to bunt. Um, you know, I, I felt like it was less predictable, you know, than it was in the States. But, um, yeah, both cultures are good. They're just different. Awesome. Yeah, and you you did jog me on one more thing that I was thinking about earlier, and me and Jeff were talking about it. And I don't know how much you have to weigh in on this again because it's, it's more pitcher-specific. But we were talking about workloads. And workloads specifically came up when we were talking about Daisuke Matsuzaka because we – I don't know if anybody else remembers, but he liked to throw a lot, um, you know, but you talked about like, oh, you're probably, you know, if you're used to a workload in the United States as a position player, pitcher, whatever it is, it's probably not the place to go to stay healthy. Um, I don't know if you can weigh in on, you know, from your observations, what it was like, you know, from a pitching standpoint, you know, were they, were they heavy on pitch counts? Were they heavy on innings? Like how did they, I guess, or did they, you know, monitor pitchers' workloads? Well, from, from my standpoint, you know, not being a pitcher, but talking to the guys and just watching them work, I mean, it's it's a badge of honor on how much you actually throw. You know, they'd have stuff in the, in the paper where they would be like, you know, hey, so-and-so threw a 200-pitch bullpen, and you're like, what? But <laughs> that's, that's, that's how they grew up doing it, you know? I mean, so it was – it's one of those things where, you know, there's – you know, I'm watching the game, you know, because a big deal over there, which was actually a really cool thing to go through, like our version of March Madness here, they do it over there with the high school. Yeah. The high school state championships. Like we literally had like a whiteboard, you know, and every team on it, you know, and there was like a pool that we were, you know, you were putting in and you're picking teams, which, you know, obviously as an American, that was tough because you didn't know who any of the who of the teams were. But right. it was um, – you know, I mean, and then they kicked, you know, at Han Shin, you know, I mean, that's kind of the crown jewel to play over there. I mean, I, I think for like a month, they don't play any home games, you know, because they play the high school games there, you know. So it's, you know, you'd see some of those kids and see it in the paper where, you know, guys are throwing, you know, 150, you know, complete games, um, you know, and it's a matter of pride, you know, but the, the I think the biggest thing with that is that they're trained that way from a very young age. You know, so they're used to throwing a lot and, you know, I mean, it's 
the, the ones that kind of survive that, I mean, obviously, you know, you look at what's going on with Shohei and some of the other guys that over here, they, you know, they're obviously really good if they survive that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the last question I'm going to ask here and then we'll wrap up. Um, we've talked a lot about pitching development. What are some of the things that stuck out about hitting development? And do you think there's some things that have changed? Cause we have seen um, some more impact hitters over the last couple of years, Connie being one of them. Uh, I think, you know, Masataka Yoshida this year is having a great year with the Red Sox. Um, and, you know, there's others that could potentially come over in the next couple of years uh, that have a little bit more impacts um, and are maybe a little bit less of the prototypical Japanese sort of hitter we think about that's like a heavy contact guy that doesn't necessarily have a lot of impact. We're seeing guys with more impact. Um, so what, what did you see over there in terms of development? Do you think there have been some things that have changed? Well, I definitely think that has changed, you know, just because there's, you know, when I was playing over there, seeing all the all the big league clubs that were over there, you know, there were a handful of guys that, you know, like you said, that, you know, there's a lot of those guys that under the right situation could have played in the United States in the big leagues, but a lot of them would not have been impact players as far as driving the ball out of the park at that point in time. Um but just watching the swings as a player then and then watching some of the swings that are coming over here now, you know, I don't know specifically what they're doing different, but it definitely looks like a different approach where, you know, there's there's definitely guys that are trying to impact the ball more um, than they were in the past. And, you know, and I think some of that is because strength's a factor in that. I think, you know, it just looks like there's they're, they're turning out more physical, stronger bigger, stronger players that, you know, now all of a sudden if they impact the ball and they're trying to slug, they can hit the ball out of the park. Um, the parks, my experience, the parks over there, they were smaller than they, than they are here. Um, you know, so it's, there's definitely some guys right now just watching, you know, the world, the world back classic there of it that have a chance to hit the ball out of the park over here as well. So yeah, I don't like, know what uh, they're teaching, but there's definitely been a change. Yeah, Murakami doesn't fit the classic mold. No. Uh, and he's also a Yakult swallow. He is. Yeah. yeah. He is. 56 home runs last year. Yeah, which is nuts. I mean, I don't care where you're playing. That's a lot of homers. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he had some very loud batting practices at Marlins Park, of all places. So, yeah. not an easy one, easy place to hit him out of. But, um, him, yeah, he's a he, big time bat for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Tons of power there. But, Matt, do you have any other questions, or uh, can we wrap up and, and let Billy go? No, we got to let Billy get to his sushi. Or his, what is it, sashimi? <laughs> he, does, he doesn't like the rice. He just takes the raw fish now. Yeah, the sashimi's nice. If I could go back in time, I, you know, I definitely probably would have mixed in, mixed in some sushi with my Mexican food while I was over there. <laughs> you just needed, like, a sushi and burrito place. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> sushi burrito, that's a conversation for another time. That oh, is, that is. There is, in fact, one in my town. I haven't eaten there before, but it it offers burritos and sushi, and it seems like wow. such a strange wow. combination. But there you go. Not, I don't live in Japan either. But that was Billy Martin, <laughs> VP of Operations for Slammers Baseball in Colorado. Billy, I want to thank you for coming on the 90th percentile. All right. Anytime. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Billy. All right. Talk to you.